From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. The coronavirus has spread quickly through communities around the world, prompting physical distancing measures to keep people safe and flatten the curve. But people in custody are especially at risk because they're often held in close quarters and lack decent medical care. Currently, nearly 36,000 people are being held by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, known as ICE, and they're all in grave danger. Almost immediately after the virus broke out, the ACLU and other advocates began arguing for the release of especially high-risk detainees, including people who are elderly or have serious medical conditions. To date, the ACLU and our affiliates have filed more than a dozen lawsuits across the country, and more than 50 detainees have been released due to our efforts. ICE is now committed to releasing an additional 600 medically vulnerable detainees. In this episode, we'll hear from two people who were recently released from detention after our litigation, Alfredo Esparza and Mario Rodas Sr., and some of their family. Then we'll speak with Eunice Cho, senior staff attorney at the ACLU's National Prison Project, who's been leading this litigation effort. A person arrived at the detention facility. They said he had coronavirus, and they warned everyone that the virus had hit the detention center. They didn't do anything. They only told us to wash our hands. Alfredo Esparza was arrested by ICE in October of 2019 as he was leaving work one day. He was placed in detention in Washington. When the coronavirus came to the state, it infected people where he was being held. Alfredo had needed medical care for a suspected heart attack while in detention, and the care he received made him fear for how he and others would be treated if they contracted the virus. I was cleaning the tables, and when I was done, I started feeling some pain. A very sharp pain in my chest. And I got worried because I never felt this kind of pain. And when I wanted to do something about it, the pain wouldn't allow me to get up from where I was sitting. I told the guard I felt really bad, and he said, Oh, go to the doctor. You don't look well. I arrived at the infirmary and told the doctor on duty. She said, I'm going to give you Maalox and Tylenol for the pain. She gave them to me, and then I felt worse. She said she would place me in the holding room for 15 minutes while I got better, and then send me back to my unit. In there, you're alone. I didn't even last 15 minutes. As soon as my pain worsened, I started banging on the door so they would let me out. I hurt my forehead, and when they saw that it was serious, that I was in really bad shape, they called the paramedics, and they took me to a hospital. They had told me there that they were going to perform heart surgery on me, but they didn't do so. The doctor care there is terrible. The worst there is. Alfredo is at high risk for succumbing to the virus given his heart condition, just like Mario Rodas Sr., a man being held in ICE detention in Massachusetts. 
Bueno, yo tenía miedo por mi salud, que tenía sí, la diabetes, entonces eh, eso me preocupaba. I was scared for my health. I have diabetes, so that worried me. I was more worried because I have high cholesterol, high pressure, all that. It was stressful, you know, because if someone were to get sick, I would be the first one to get it. Mario's family were the first ones to tell him about the coronavirus. If I hadn't had them on the outside, I don't know what would have happened to me. We wouldn't have had means of communications. I don't know what would have happened. There are many people who have no communication with the outside world, no one to help them. That's the kind of thing I saw inside, and it's so sad. They cry. Like I said, it's sad to be inside. Mario Sr. began to really worry for both his safety and the safety of those around him. Meanwhile, his family, especially his son Mario Jr., began to advocate for his release. On March 20th, there was a press release that this facility, the Puma County Correctional Facility, put out that one of the employees there, they didn't specifically identify who it was, had been tested positive for COVID-19. And that's all they said. So then we were like, oh, my God. And I guess internally, they were just breaking them into groups the different detainees, to try to avoid this social or physical distancing amongst them. But despite that, the problem with this virus is that if you happen to have it, you can be asymptomatic, have no symptoms at all. And then like three or four days later, you can test positive. We were super devastated. We were angry, annoyed, um, sometimes felt hopeless, that there was nothing else that we could do. We just wanted to get back home. That's all we were asking. The ACLU, alongside partner organizations, filed petitions for Alfredo and Mario's release, among other high-risk detainees. They were both granted a temporary release during the COVID-19 crisis. I was happy. I was I couldn't believe it, but at the same time, I was also being very cautious that I wanted to see him out to be able to believe it. And then I was waiting outside the immigration building built in Burlington for about two hours. They wouldn't even let me in. They said, please wait in your car. And then finally he came out and yeah, I was just super happy to see him again. To understand more about the COVID-19 crisis happening in detention centers across the country and the effort being made by many to advocate for the release of all detainees, I spoke with my colleague Eunice Cho. Eunice, we've heard from some of our clients their stories of what it's been like to be in detention in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak. But I want to take a step back, and if you can just tell us a bit about how people end up in ICE detention. How is it different from other types of detention? 
So people end up in ICE detention for a number of reasons. Some of them are people who are coming to the United States seeking asylum and protection from their home countries. And once they enter the United States, they're put into immigration detention facilities while they're awaiting adjudication of their cases. Other people are undocumented people who have been living in the United States for a very long time and have been put into detention because of encounters with local law enforcement agencies or because they have been pulled into the immigration and criminal justice system and transferred into detention that way. And remember, this is a civil detention system and not a criminal detention system. And about how long are most people held for in these circumstances? It really depends from case to case. Some people basically stay in detention for a short while because they aren't fighting their cases and want to be released. Some people are released on bond or parole, but other people who are fighting their cases can be held in detention for several months, even many years at that time. Well, the conditions in ICE detention were a point of litigation and a point of discussion long before coronavirus hit. But as soon as the virus came to the U.S., you and your team had the foresight to realize the potential impact on detained people, and you almost immediately began to file cases. How did you mount such an effort so quickly, and what did you hope to achieve? That's right. Well, once we started seeing the uh, information about COVID-19 coming up, we realized that the congregate environments such as immigration detention centers and prisons and jails would be a dangerous hotspot for COVID-19. We first initially saw some of the largest outbreaks of COVID-19 in places like nursing homes and cruise ships. Those were the early days of COVID-19 here in the United States. And What happens in those types of facilities is that COVID-19 spreads like wildfire. People simply cannot practice the social distancing mechanisms that all of us are practicing right now, much less the hygiene protocols that you need to do to protect yourself from the virus. Imagine yourself in a place like a cruise ship, but under even more stringent conditions. You have to listen to what a detention officer tells you to do. People are in incredibly close contact with another. Bunk beds are two to three feet away from each other. If someone coughs, you're probably going to breathe it in. These are highly unsanitary facilities even before the COVID-19 took place. And everything that we know about medical care and detention facilities is also that it is substandard. So these were things that began to raise red flags even from the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Once we started looking there, we realized that there had to be something done very quickly. As you said earlier, there's over 35,000 people who are held in immigration detention. And among those are people who are at serious risk of illness or even death um, because of COVID. We know that there is no vaccine, there's no treatment, there's no cure to COVID-19. And the only thing people can do is to practice the social distancing and hygiene. And again, that is impossible to do in a detention facility. Well, it seems quite straightforward, the imminent risk that these folks are facing. But Getting them out of jail has not been as easy as we might have hoped. The government is pushing back at every turn, arguing that these people should stay in detention. What sort of arguments is the government raising specifically? Sure. Well, what we've seen the government argue actually boggles the mind. Um, They've been saying that, first, that people don't have ascertainable risk to getting COVID-19 because there have been no reported cases of COVID in the facility. But the other thing that we've noticed is that 
as we all know, there is a huge lack of testing available in the United States. And people who are in detention are at the very end of the line when it comes to getting tested. That is probably why um, in all of ICE's reports about who is testing positive for COVID-19, for the most part, it's been staff and employees, not detainees themselves. And it's pretty hard to imagine that given the conditions of detention, that detainees are not exposed to COVID-19, especially when staff have tested positive. The other thing that we've noticed is that in one of our cases, you know, the government made this argument that there was no risk to people in detention of getting COVID-19 because there had been no confirmed cases. But the judge actually pushed back further on the government and got the government to admit that there was no testing available at that facility. And so, if you're not testing anyone, it is sure easy to say that there are no confirmed cases of COVID, but that doesn't prove that people don't have exposure to the virus at the facility themselves. Another thing that the government has been arguing is that the conditions of detention are such that people can practice social distancing effectively in detention. In fact, one of the declarations that the government made was that because they basically took a map of the facility and measured the square footage of the facility and, and divided it by the number of people who are in the facility. And they said, because there was 36 square foot per person in the facility, mm. that there was enough room for people to practice social distancing. Now, we can all imagine that if people were sitting on a grid a pattern and did <laughs> nothing but sit in that position for 24 hours, perhaps that social distancing would be possible. But it is impossible to imagine in a facility where bunk beds, again, are bolted to the floor two feet from one another, where people have to share toilets and showers and eat at the same tables, that any measure of social distancing in that way is possible. And unfortunately, the government is making these types of arguments to justify uh, keeping people, especially those who are medically vulnerable in the facilities. You just got off the phone with a call in New Jersey and you've been trying cases all over the country, but I'm curious how you got involved in Alfredo's and Mario's cases. You know, Alfredo and Mario are examples of some of the first people that were released from immigration custody as a result of our lawsuits. And indeed, these two folks were actually released voluntarily by ICE after we filed the lawsuit, which raises the question why ICE is not doing this on a larger scale if they can recognize that people who have serious medical vulnerabilities should not be locked up in detention in the first place. We found these plaintiffs with the cooperation of our community partners, such as La Resistencia in Washington State, the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, the ACLU of Massachusetts, and other community groups that have a very close ear to the ground with respect to what is happening in the detention centers. People are incredibly aware of the impending disaster that is going to be taking place. And the fact that the medical infrastructure, both inside the detention facility and outside, is completely unprepared to deal with what would happen if there was an infectious outbreak at any of these facilities. So detainees are completely cognizant of this risk. And it was not a difficult conversation to have to ask folks to sign up for this lawsuit. It's certainly clear that there's a strong impetus and, a, and an urgent need to get these people out of harm's way and get as many people out of detention as possible. But it begs the question, what happens to them once they are released? I mean, we heard from Alfredo and a bit from Mario and their families, but how do you address the question of what will you do with these people and how do you make sure that they're not going into other unsafe conditions? 
That's right. Well, one thing that we've been doing, and I know that the courts have been considering with respect to our plaintiffs, and certainly we hope uh, will happen for many other people, is to develop a release strategy so that when people are released from detention, they have a safe place to go, that they can shelter in place and quarantine themselves for 14 days so that if they have been exposed unknowingly, that they can finish out that quarantine period, both for their safety and the safety of the community. And so we have been working closely with family members, friends, and community support to help support people once they are released from detention. The ironic thing is that for all of ICE's claims that people are going to be unsafe once they're released. We've seen ICE literally dumping people on the side of the road when they've decided to release people because of the lawsuits. So in several of our cases, we have received emergency phone calls from folks who happened to borrow a cell phone of a passerby saying, I just got let out. Uh, what should I do now? And that seems to have unfortunately been the experience of some people who have been released as a result. This is a problem that's only going to grow, right? Because as we mentioned, uh, some folks have already been let out, but ICE has now identified several hundred more people that it intends to release. Do you have any update on whether ICE has actually started releasing these people and what's happening to them once they're getting out? We don't have very much information about who the government has identified as part of the 600 people. And our position is that it's a good start, but it is nowhere near enough of the numbers that need to be released, including people who are medically vulnerable. Our read of ICE's criteria for medical vulnerability is much, much more limited than what our medical experts have been telling us. So there are some very fact-specific disagreements about who should be released or not. That said, I think what we also need to remember is the fact that releasing people from custody, no matter the number, is an ultimate net benefit for the entire community's public health. If we are to leave thousands of people in these detention facilities where COVID-19 spreads like wildfire in the facility and where there's going to be a need for hospital beds, intensive care units, ventilators, and treatment like that, it will immediately overwhelm an already overtaxed system of hospitals and local health providers. We're already having a hard time meeting the need. We know about the numbers of ventilators and the shortages all over the place. Many of these detention facilities are located in rural areas where there are very, very few hospital beds and doctors available. And what we are going to see, I'm afraid, is if we don't actually release people soon into safe quarters where they can shelter in place with their families or friends and stop the virus from spreading... So that means people who already have it aren't in an environment where it can continue to spread or people in those environments who don't already have it won't get it. Uh, that is what we have to do immediately to make sure that this disaster in the making doesn't happen. I mean, well, the government's you know ridiculous claims about what actually constitutes a medically vulnerable person aside, it seems rightful that a lot of the focus has been on those folks who are elderly or medically vulnerable for some reason or in some way high risk for coronavirus. But we also know that there are thousands and thousands of children who are being held in ICE detention. And I'm curious, what, if any, effect has the outbreak of the virus had on them? And has there been any effort to release children as well? Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, there have been reports of COVID-19 in the children's facilities as well, in the 
facilities that are operated by the Office of Refugee Resettlement, who are the custodians for unaccompanied minors. The reports of these children contracting COVID-19 is of terrible concern uh, for all of us. And indeed, some of our allies have been working night and day to also try to hold the government accountable and requesting their release. These cases are currently being litigated at this point, and we fully support success in these measures as well. Well, one of the comments that you hear or criticisms that you hear of these efforts to get people out of prison, whether it's ICE detention or other types of custody, is that it's opportunism. You know, groups like the ACLU, they just don't like ICE. They don't like immigration detention. And so we're using the coronavirus as an excuse to spring people out of jail. How does the current effort in the light of the coronavirus fit in with our broader positions on immigration, on ICE and on detention? Well, even before COVID-19 hit, we were already concerned with the conditions of confinement in immigration detention facilities. In the last three years, a record number of people have died in detention custody, much in part due to lax health and safety and medical care that was provided in the detention facilities. And so these issues have been paramount in terms of the safety and health of people who have been detained for quite a long time. This is just an even larger example and an even more concerning issue with respect to the health and safety of people who are being held in custody. Remember, anyone in custody still has constitutional rights to be safe and to not be sentenced to death because they're being held awaiting their immigration adjudication. So that is, I think, why this is of paramount concern to the ACLU and our allies as well. There's certainly some reason for hope. I've seen some reports where folks in ICE custody have actually decided to drop their cases and be deported rather than stay in detention during the coronavirus outbreak. So while there's reason for hope, there's also great reason for pessimism. I wonder where do you think things are moving? Are you encouraged by recent developments? I think there's some reason to hope uh, for the best here with respect to people who are in custody and immigration detention. We just got off the phone for a telephonic hearing with a court in New Jersey where the judge excoriated the government for failing to provide safe conditions to people in detention and really understood the danger that is faced by people who are in these detention facilities. In particular, New Jersey is the hotspot of COVID-19 with respect to jails and immigration detention at this point. And I think it is very clear what the danger is once people are starting to get infected and even die. There have been three deaths of staff at the facility thus far. What I'm hoping is that the rest of the country can learn from these early cases and try to avert disaster as much as possible. But given the intransigence of the Trump administration, given its failure to exercise its power to release people on medically for medical vulnerability, to exercise discretion in a much larger way, it does give me concern. I'm sure our listeners have read the stories about immigration detention and are really eager to help in any way they can. But one of the peculiar features about having to quarantine and shelter in place is that sense of helplessness and wondering what on earth one can do to help. Do you have any advice for folks even if they might be stuck in their apartments or in their homes, what can people do to try to support this effort to get people out of harm's way from ICE detention? Well, I think there are many different things that folks can do. Uh, first is 
contact local policymakers and express your outrage and concern for people who are in immigration detention. It is very helpful for our congressional leaders, for our local leaders who are holding uh, people in immigration detention to know that as a community, we are all concerned about what is happening in these detention facilities. In terms of helping support detainees directly, there are several bond funds that will allow to help people get out of detention if they've been given a bond. If the government doesn't move faster, in terms of releasing people on any of these grounds. Of course, please support the ACLU and our ally organizations who are doing the work to get people out and also support local community organizations that are helping undocumented immigrant communities as well who are also feeling huge impacts as a result of the downturn of the economy due to COVID-19. Eunice Cho, I can't thank you enough for taking time to speak with us today and more importantly for all of your amazing work on behalf of these people who need your help so much. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you appreciated this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. If you'd like to contribute, you can go to www.aclu.org slash donate. Till next week, peace. Peace.